I'm Zach DeBrima, and with me is my brother Alex. Alex, how are we doing? I'm doing well. Very happy to uh, be here talking about hymns today. Alex, at this very moment, Jesus Christ is someplace, and he's engaged in a very important work. Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus is seated at God's right hand, where he is interceding on our behalf. I want to read Hebrews 7, verses 24 and 25, where the author says, He holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Alex, do you think the doctrine of Christ's priesthood is an important doctrine, and maybe moreover, a a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, uh, Christ's priesthood is very much at the center of um, the gospel itself. Hebrews is is the book that I think reveals this perspective most clearly. But there's there's two aspects in which Christ is is um, two functions of his priestly ministry. He's the sacrifice himself, and we believe penal substitutionary atonement's at the heart of the gospel. And so Christ, the sacrificial lamb. Mm-hmm. Is 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 the the offering the atonement for our sins? If you could pause just for a second, because I think you said something that's very important. Uh, you said it, it, it's at the center of the gospel itself. Uh-huh. I think that's a phrase we we often use. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we use too much, but mm-hmm. can you just uh, strengthen that statement and bolster that statement that that Christ's priesthood is actually at the center of the gospel? Well, I I, I think most clearly in Scripture we see the atonement is at the center of the gospel, and the um, historical events surrounding the atonement, which would encompass also Christ's resurrection. So so the, the, the center of the gospel is the death and resurrection of the Son of God on behalf of sinners. And so um, that, that's just made plain again and again in Romans 3 and 1 Corinthians 15 um, and a host of passages. And so when we're talking about atonement and an offering being made for sin and all of that, we're talking about Christ not in his kingly office primarily, though there's, there's some overlap there, not in his prophetic office primarily, but in his priestly office primarily, where Christ, as Hebrews tells us, is both the sacrifice itself and the one offering up a sacrifice. So, so Hebrews will make reference to him offering up himself. Hmm. Mm-hmm. He's the high priest, and he is the sacrificial lamb. And um, yeah, so that makes it utterly fundamental because that sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross is what saves us from our sins. And, um, and then also, Christ now, in his function as high priest, is pleading the merits of that sacrifice repeatedly, continue on, continually on our behalf. You read Hebrews 7. We could have read Hebrews 9.24, where it says mm-hmm. that Christ uh, appears before God now on our behalf. Yeah. He's, he's advocating for us, interceding for us. Uh, we depend at all times on the high priestly office of the Lord Jesus, so yeah, very fundamental. When, as Christians, so often we're looking in the past, we're looking at Christ, uh, his incarnation, his death, and even his resurrection, his glorious resurrection. Why is it so easy for us to forget Christ's present ministry? Well, I, I guess in part because um, 
there's going to be more biblical material focusing on particularly the significance of the death of Christ itself as payment, um, as redemption, as, as accomplishing reconciliation between God and man, the blood of that sacrificial lamb uh, achieving the forgiveness of sins for us. There's just a lot of biblical material on that. And um, if you were to strike Hebrews from the Bible, mm-hmm. the the present ministry of Jesus interceding on behalf of his people is just not just not it's not reflected upon as commonly yes. in other books in the Bible. It's especially prominent in the book of Hebrews. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in other passages. Right. I mean, the high priestly prayer in John's Gospel yes. is Christ performing the function of a high priest on our behalf. So I, I just think there's so much reflection on what Christ did historically on our behalf, and we're just not giving enough attention to the passages, to the texts, um, and we're not recognizing that Christ does have this, this ongoing ministry. But it, it's vital not just you know, factually, you know, as a tenant of theology, that Christ has an ongoing intercessory ministry. How experientially relevant is it? To know that Christ is yeah. appearing for us as an advocate, even now, and that he's perpetually pleading the merits of his blood, and there's, there's this present tense thing going on uh, at all times on our behalf. How, how, how that ought to fuel our prayer lives and our worship and our thoughts about Jesus. Yeah. I can remember where I was in college. I was probably 20 years old when I, I read John 17, and I had certainly read it before, but to understand that that Jesus' prayer in that uh, in that chapter is a reflection of his heart towards me now uh, was just earth shattering. Yeah, it, yeah. it changed it changed the, the the paradigm of our life. It changed how I looked at my relationship with Christ. And I just remember thinking, where has this been my whole life? Yes. I was converted when I was ten years old, and. I always knew Jesus, you know, his office is prophet, priest, and king. I, I heard those yes, terms, yes. but I just never had considered it deeply at all, Christ and priesthood. I, and I don't think that's an unusual experience. I've not been in pastoral ministry very long, but but I, I've, I've seen a number of people have that realization. They talk about the impact it had on them when they first realized th- this, this work that Christ is doing now on our behalf. It's not just something he did 2,000 years ago. And... Um, uh, it, it's uh, one of the, the sweetest ways I've heard it communicated experientially is from a Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish minister, died when he was about 29, lived in the early 1800s, and he, he has this great quote that I've just shared with a lot of people over the years um, and found it so helpful myself. McShane says, if I could hear Christ Jesus praying for me in the next room, hmm. I wouldn't fear a thousand enemies. Hmm. And, and then he says, and, and yet distance makes no difference. Hmm. He, he's praying for me even now. Hmm. And um, to think that the Lord Jesus is, is, is bringing my name before the Father and interceding for me, what confidence that should give us, what comfort that should give us. It, it really, I think, fills uh, every moment with some electricity in some ways. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's also, it's important to understand for us as Christians, that this doctrine of Christ's priesthood is not uh, icing on the cake. It's mm. not a, a cherry on top of a salvation Sunday, mm-hmm. but it's something that we desperately need. Mm-hmm. If I don't have Christ interceding on my behalf, I'm in a desperate situation. Yes. I think if we read Hebrews 7, it says, consequently, yes. consequently, because of his priesthood, consequently, he is able to save 
to the uttermost. Mm -hmm. It's vital to our life. It's vital to uh, uh, the activity that needs to be accomplished to keep us in the faith. Yes, so well said. And if I could just make a theological distinction that I think is important, because um, Roman Catholics, for example, will talk a lot about Christ's high priestly ministry, and they will emphasize the representation of the sacrifice Mm. of Jesus Mm -hmm. again and again. That's not what we're talking about. Mm. That's not what Christ's ongoing ministry is. His ongoing ministry is pleading the merits of that once-for-all sacrifice. Mm. He he Mm -hmm. delivered himself up once for all. He dealt with sin definitively, and and now he is is bringing the benefits of that one act uh, uh, carried out, executed in history. He's bringing those benefits to bear upon our lives and bringing them before the face of the Father. Um, with with ongoing implications for our lives in the present, but it's not like Christ is being re-crucified again and again or something like that, or the 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 sacrifice, uh, you know, on the cross was not good enough or something like that. It's that it was so powerful, has so many benefits that Christ is bringing those benefits to bear um, through His intercession. We're speaking of Christ's priesthood right now. We could also talk about his, Him as King, His uh, prophet. Uh, those categories in particular, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, can you explain those categories a little bit? Are those artificial? Are those helpful in summarizing Christ's ministry? Is there a text that refers to those? Uh, how should we understand Christ's role as prophet, priest, and king? Sure, I think they're helpful. I may be off a little bit on my, my, my history here, but I think that way of thinking about Christ's ministry um, uh, became especially popular through John Calvin hmm. in the 16th century. He was fond of speaking of the those three ministries of the Lord Jesus. And and I would just say there's no question the, the, the way the way I would want to establish um, that, that that threefold division of Christ's office would be to say you have those offices established in the Old Testament in a way that clearly anticipates a greater fulfillment of it. So for example, yes. uh, the, the 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 monarchy is established in Israel because Israel has rejected God as their king, but it's very quickly thereafter promised that God's gonna bring about a greater king, the, the true king, you know? And David's just a foreshadowing of that. Similarly with the priests of the Old Testament, Hebrews makes that abundantly clear that these priests were just, they, they were so inadequate that, mm, that there was mm-hmm. clearly this expectation, this anticipation for a greater fulfillment of that office. Similarly, Deuteronomy, oh, I think it's 18 or 19, um, Moses says there's going to come a prophet, right? greater prophet, yeah. and God's going to put his words in this prophet's mouth, and you're going to listen to him. So clearly, those offices that we see in the Old Testament of, of the Aaronic priests, of prophets like Moses and later prophets like Isaiah, of kings like Saul, David, and those thereafter, they're anticipating a larger fulfillment. And then you will see all over the New Testament. Um, the New Testament writers reflecting back on Jesus in these these various offices. He's the prophet that speaks for God, mm-hmm. represents God. Uh, he's he's obviously David's greater son, the king who comes to reign over all, and he is he is that great priest that's to come to offer up himself as a sacrifice mm-hmm. um, for for sin. Yeah, I, I I do think though that language, that way that 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 scheme 
pretty sure around the Reformation is where it becomes especially popular. I think John Calvin's the one who's working most with it. Yeah. Well, we want to discuss Christ's priesthood and its impact on hymnody and congregational singing, more fundamentally the need that we sing about this doctrine. But mm-hmm. why do you think it's important, Alex, in the life of the church that Christians be reminding each other of Christ's priesthood, of his present ministry? For, for objective reasons and subjective reasons. Objectively, it's true. This is true about Jesus. This is how he's revealed in the Bible. He is a savior for sinners. He's a mediator between God and man. You can't talk about Christ very long before talking about him in this function mm-hmm. as high priest, mm-hmm. the, the one who appears before God on our behalf. And it's necessary for the salvation of your souls in every way. Then there's subjective reasons. It's just so experientially helpful to people. Mm. So, so, so we always need to be reminding people of the truth and speaking the truth in love and uh, stirring one another's minds you know, toward the truth. And then also this has experiential power in people's lives um, in all sorts of ways. Doesn't it make you, you know, um, sort of wonder at the love of Christ to know that he makes the little piddling concerns of my life part of the subject matter of his prayers before God hmm. in order to bring about a certain confidence and boldness and joy in me. That's why I say, I, 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 I sounded a little breathless a moment ago, but to me it, it electrifies your life. Yeah. Every moment is all of a sudden of greater import if you appreciate that Jesus Christ cares enough about my days mm-hmm. to instruct me how to pray myself and then also to bring those matters before the Father. I think it, it moves us to want to fight our sin, yeah. to know that Jesus is so personally invested in, in, in appearing as my advocate, and it makes me want to love him and serve him and do right by him. Mm. Yeah, and, and it, 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 it gives me confidence to make it through my days. And so I, I think McShane's quote a minute ago, I, I've just seen that, mm-hmm. um, provides such comfort and solace for Christians yeah. to think about Christ in that way. I think what you said about the electrifying effect is is so true. I yeah. mean, for, for me personally, it's just infused vitality in my in my walk with Christ. Yes. Uh, I, I think so often Christians can look at their relationship with Jesus like a star athlete looks at his past career in sports. Yeah. Like, man, I remember when we won the Super Bowl. Yeah. I remember when Jesus died on the cross sure. and when he rose again. And it's all this very important event that happened in the past that changes my future. But we don't look at the the actual present ministry of what Jesus it, is doing it, right it now. Makes, it makes my relationship with Jesus um, profoundly contemporary, doesn't yes. it? Yes. You know, there's something happening now between me and Christ, and Christ and the Father, and me and the Father through Christ that is is yeah remarkably contemporary and relevant and immediate and present yeah jesus is interceding on my behalf and that's true every day and affects the way that i live so in a moment we're going to discuss before the throne which is probably the hymn that sums up this doctrine most helpfully uh can you think of this doctrine's impact on hymnody maybe hymns that particularly bring it out well that come to mind yeah well the sense in which you could say any song that reflects on the atonement of Christ is reflecting on the priesthood of Christ mm, mm-hmm. to some degree or another. Arise, my soul, arise is a, a very, a very prominent one in my thinking. Um, yeah, but but any any song that's going to center around the atonement and Christ offering up of Himself, any song that references Christ as the Lamb of God, mm. um, or or appearing on our behalf, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm.
Okay, Alex, well, we can move to our hymn of the week. And this week we're discussing Before the Throne by Charity Lee Smith or Charity Lee's Bancroft. Alex, I have to admit, I've been singing this song for 15, 20 years. And uh, up until a few weeks ago, I always thought Vicki Cook wrote this song. Hmm. I thought it was a 20th century, late 20th century hymn, uh, but it's actually, the text is from the 19th century. Uh, uh, Charity, she lived from 1841 to 1823, and she was the— 1923. Excuse me, yes, 1841 to uh, she lived a very long, long time, and her hymns were published in uh, my hero, J.C. Ryle's hymn books that he published. Mm. And I saw that she, she actually had her hymns uh, published in one of Spurgeon's hymn books. Mm-hmm. What was the title of that Spurgeon uh, He had a, a hymn book that uh, he collated himself and released, I want to say in the 1850s, mid-1850s, called our own hymn book. Mm-hmm. It was very popular in, in its own day. At the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the site it currently is on, uh, they had buried in the ground uh, in a little package. One of the things they buried there, kind of like a time capsule, was a copy of the, the church's hymn book. And, and you're right, yeah, this, this hymn is included in the hymn book. I too thought it was a more modern song yeah. until, um, until fairly recently. I, I just have to say, to, to get on a, my soapbox for a moment, um, how important it is that pastors, even prominent pastors, take congregational singing seriously. Hmm. We think of men like giants like Charles Spurgeon or J.C. Ryle, and there's such examples to us in faithful preaching, uh, mm-hmm. faithful ministry, faithful shepherding of, of, of God's people. But we don't think of something like collating a hymn book, how God used something like that and uses something like that to shepherd yeah. people. If, if you want to, if you're interested in the subject of congregational reading, um, don't know this for sure, but. Reading um, or singing? Congregational singing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, th- there would have been no bigger advocate for congregational singing in the Victorian year than Charles Spurgeon. Yeah. I think Matt Boswell, hymn writer today, is mm-hmm. writing a thesis on Spurgeon and hymnody or congregational singing. Yeah. But he didn't have any any other instruments. It was just all a cappella. They had a, what they called a presenter at the front of the church who would play a note on a you know a tuning fork yeah. or a, a pitch pipe or something like that. And then would lead the congregation in in singing, and um, the the descriptions, you, the eyewitness descriptions of um, of those those services and the hearty singing in the church are, are quite stirring to read. So this hymn before the throne was originally t- uh, under the title "The Advocate" and was published in at least in Spurgeon's hymnal in 1866, 1867, around there. Before the throne, it's just a it's it beautifully uh, expounds the priesthood of Christ. First verse says, "Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea: a great high priest whose name is Love, who ever lives and pleads for me." I think the hymn does a wonderful job of constantly fixing the the our gaze upon Christ and reminding us of, of what His ministry is. Alex, what are some thoughts you have about Before the Throne? I, I love this song. It's one of my favorite hymns. I think it fits well in a variety of places in the service. I think there's a sense of us coming to God and coming to God through Jesus that I think is so appropriate 
and so stirring. And I'd be hard-pressed to find a, a, a song that better captures the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Who has not, of those who sing this song frequently, who has not, you know, shouted the second verse back to Satan? Hmm. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Uh, I think in Spurgeon's hymnal, I don't know if this would be true in, in other uh, hymnals in the 19th century, the last line, which we sing, Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. He, he has it as, Behold him there, the bleeding lamb, I think. Which is not a tremendously different idea. Mm-hmm. I think both can be true. Um, in Revelation, the picture we get is, is there is the risen lamb in Revelation 5. And, and he's standing as though he had been slain. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Obviously, the blood of the lamb is, is prominent in, in Revelation as well. But yeah, that, that picture of looking to Jesus as this lamb that was slain on our behalf and, um, and, and has accomplished salvation for us, it's profoundly moving. I love this song. I mean, it really is one of my favorite songs to sing uh, in our, our worship services at Emmanuel. Yeah, I would just also add, you know, musically, it works well, different arrangements. Uh, so I've, I've been moved by uh, highly produced versions with a full band uh, and, and acoustic versions or even a cappella versions. We do it almost uh, differently each time we, we sing it at our, at our church. So there's a lot of flexibility there. I think it's great with the piano, great with the guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, I, I just think I don't think uh, worship leaders and pastors and churches can sing this song and promote this song enough. Yeah, I think, uh, and I would recommend singing it a cappella every now and again. I think it's very stirring when you sing it a cappella in a group of, of uh, well, you could do it in a group of 10 people, you could do it in a group of uh, 500. In either case, I think it can be very moving to sing this song with no, no accompaniment. It carries well. Mm-hmm. Well, friends, we're out of time. Alex, thank you for your time. Thank you, brother.